Scripture reading this morning is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So all the rich man, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. It is really good to be with you. Uh, uh, if you could keep your passage open, that would be fantastic because we'll be looking at it quite a bit. Uh, but first, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that we're able to be here. Uh, this morning together in the same room to open your word and we pray father that as we do open your word that your son is held so very high uh, that we learn more of him and fall ever so much more in love with our lord and savior this morning we ask for this in jesus name amen um, I saw a picture the other day of a terrified man holding his little daughter, and it struck my heart. Being a dad of a five-year-old, I could never imagine being in a situation where both my daughter and I were in such a, a dire place. Uh, so doing a bit of research on the picture, I found out that it was taken and distributed and used as a wake-up call to the world to put a face to the refugee problem that's happening in parts of the planet at the moment and to show that there is uh, serious suffering happening with people groups that we may have never even heard of. It got me thinking, what causes people to pick up everything, chuck their essentials all in a, in a small bag and flee their home, risking their very lives? 
It must come about because their condition is absolutely dire. And this is what we see with refugees, isn't it? Usually they've come to flee their home because they're living in conditions that have become unbearable or so dangerous that they're willing to risk everything just for the chance of a better life somewhere else, anywhere else. And instead of just sitting around, uh, just waiting to see what will happen, they conclude that it's better to take their chances in the great unknown. This is a situation I don't think many of us could imagine. I'm telling you all of this because this is the kind of context that we're looking at our letter being written into this morning. The recipients of this letter were not in the best of living conditions. That's why we read in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Uh, Dispersion here simply means scattered, and thus the Uh, Christians being addressed in this letter were walking through incredibly hard times. Uh, As many scholars believe, they were in these hard times and they had to disperse from their home in Jerusalem because of the result of persecution that had come upon them for their Christian faith. So that's the context we we need to keep in the back of our minds as we look uh, through this chapter this morning. And James, who was their pastor, was writing to encourage them. So what's the pastoral advice that he gives them? Well, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, that wasn't exactly uh, the pastoral counselling that we may have been expecting, but James is going to drive at something in this passage that is going to become so much more clear and wonderful as we work our way through it. And it has to do with how God intends to deepen our faith in him through trials. Now remember, as I said before, we have to keep in mind who James is writing to. His audience was needy, they're scattered and alienated from one another as a result of persecution. In other words, they were in the worst circumstances you could imagine in the ancient world. And the trials that they were facing weren't just external either. It was internally affecting them, as, as the rest of this letter will go on to show us. Uh, Therefore, their external pressures were putting them in danger of internally fleeing God by losing trust in him. So James has a serious situation that he needs to write into. It's important that we see what he's not saying to them in this passage. He's not saying to them, come on guys, you've just got to have a little bit more faith and a positive attitude and you'll get through this whole thing. Nor is he saying that it's their fault and that they're being punished by God for some sin. No, he's saying, this trial that you find yourself in, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Now, as I was doing some research for this sermon and reading through this passage, I got an email from a friend who was going through a horrific time, through a really hard time of trial. It's a Bible saying that I should say to him, mate, you're going through a trial, that's great news. Put a smile on your face and tell God everything's okay. Is that what the Bible's telling us to do? Well, I'd say this, we need to understand what James is setting out to achieve here. First, he's saying to count it 
Or another word, uh, another way of saying this is to see this or regard this or to understand trials as joyous, meaning that James is wanting to draw his audience attention to the way Christians are meant to objectively look at trials in their life. In other words, he's, he's not giving us a manual on pastoral procedure, but on the theology of how the Christian is meant to understand suffering in this world. And we're meant to find joy in it. And that is true, no doubt. And we're going to unpack that uh, in our time together this morning. However, I, I want to point your attention to, to something. Uh, this shouldn't be, these, this, this sentence of counting it to be all joy shouldn't be the first uh, thing that pops out of our mouth when walking with people who are going through a, a horrific time. Let me draw your attention uh, to... Jesus, when he went to Bethany in John chapter 11, as Mary and Martha were mourning the death of their brother, Jesus didn't go up to them and say, uh, count this as all joy, sisters. He didn't even start by saying God has a reason for this. We certainly see that God showed his glory through this tragedy later, but what do we see Jesus do straight off the bat? He weeps with them. He mourns with them. And this too should be the way that we treat our brothers and sisters when going through various trials. We get alongside them. We love them practically. And we should journey with them and pray with them. So James isn't prescribing how to do pastoral practice here in the midst of trials. He's getting his people to see what the Christian's whole attitude towards what trials are objectively doing in their lives, to see that. By showing them that they're not just some random events that the universe has shot at them without meaning. No, he's showing them that their trials have real and meaningful purpose. And we see this in verses 3 and 4. James says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see what James is saying here? He's telling these people that they can have joy in their trials because when their faith is tested, when they're going through what seems like hell on earth, it's actually resulting in something wonderful. Namely, that they're being made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, if we were to think, whose character does he sound like he's talking about here? Who, who does he sound like he's describing? Who's perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing? Certainly not us, right? We could never describe ourselves like that on this side of eternity. I, I know I couldn't. So what is James describing here? He's talking about God's character. As he, he alone is perfect, complete, and he alone lacks nothing. So it seems what James is, is doing here is he's showing his people that God is using various trials to grow his people for a purpose, to become more and more conformed into his own character and likeness. Let me bring this a little closer to home church. It's safe to say that God, God's purpose in the various trials that we find ourselves in is to grow us into his likeness. We see this all throughout the Bible. God refi refines the, the dross off the gold, so to speak. 
However, if this isn't our ambition, if we don't want to be refined, if we want to cruise through life and avoid all hard things, we will find trials a joyless experience. Let me unpack that for just a moment. I know for myself, when hard times hit, the first thing that I want to do is get through it as quickly as I can and, and, and unscathed as I can. Because trials are no fun. And if it was up to me, I wouldn't want to go through them at all. But that's just not life. Trials are out of our control and they will come. In fact, that's how James starts his whole letter. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. He doesn't say, if you meet trials of various kinds. This means that if our aim in trials is to get through it as quick as possible, to fix the circumstances that, and get things back to the way they were, or even to avoid them altogether, when trials come, they will be full of endless worry, anxiety and frustration, meaning that it'll be hard to find any joy in them as your aim is to achieve something that's entirely out of your control. So I might ask here, what is your ambition in trials? Is it to avoid as much pain as possible? Is it to make it as short as it can be? Well, if your answer is yes, fair enough. But think about the trials that you've gone through or even that you're going through now, they might be little, they might be massive, but if your goal is to get through the whole thing totally unscathed or to fix every circumstance so it will never happen again, then maybe we'll get it through it this time okay. Maybe not. However, the reality is you just don't know. So trials tend to be a, a horrid experience, a horrid, joyless experience. So I might ask here, how... How do we find joy in our trials? Well, what if your ambition was to grow in the knowledge of God and be transformed into the likeness of Jesus? What if every time a trial hit, your prayer was honest with God and you said, Lord, this season is hard and it hurts, but in this trial, I want to know more of you. That is a radical way to see trials. But I think that's what James is getting us to see here. He's getting us to see that various trials are a part of life. But for the Christian, they're actually occasions being used by God to grow us in, his likeness, in the likeness of Jesus, to mature our faith. And if our desire is to be more like him, to reflect his character, then we will find joy in the midst of these hard times. Let me say that another way. If your aim, your prayer in trials is to be conformed to the image of Jesus, if that's your desire, then no matter what hits you, no matter how hard or dark the valley may be, there will be joy in the midst of it because you will be seeing how God is using it to transform you and conform you to the character that is like his. And this seems so unnatural so very, very unnatural to us. However, James goes on to say that we're not alone in any of this. We don't go through these trials alone. Read with me verse 5, if you would. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. 
This is saying that in our trials, we can ask for wisdom from God because he's, he's making it clear that God isn't aloof somewhere out there in the universe. No, he's right there with us. Now, wisdom, as the Bible dictionaries describe it, is a comprehensive knowledge of things in their proper nature and relations, together with the power combining them in the most useful manner. I'll say that again if you're taking notes. Wisdom is a comprehensive knowledge of things in their proper nature and relations, together with the power of combining them in their most useful manner. So what James is, is telling us here is that as we go through trials, as our faith is tested and expect that it will be, we can call on the one who will help us to see our trials in their proper nature and relations. In other words, James is saying to us to draw close to God in the midst of our trials. Because first of all, you are not alone. And secondly, he knows exactly what is happening and he'll give you the right perspective and how to walk that season out. That's how we mature in our faith, church. We learn to trust God in the midst of our trials, and we learn to trust that he knows exactly what he's doing as he's ever conforming us to the character of his son. That's why James joins this promise here with a warning, that we draw close to God in our trials and ask for wisdom in faith with no doubting. Because as he says in verses 7 and 8, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's warning that if we doubt God's character, if we doubt that he's a good father and knows exactly what he's doing through our trials, then we won't really come to him in faith, nor trust that he can give us any wisdom in and through our trials. So like any storm, which is so unpredictable, which can lead this way or that way, we too will be filled with anxiety because we're going through trials blind, not knowing where things are taking us. We have to conclude what James is saying here. It's only as we trust God in our trials, it's only as we humbly come to him in faith and ask for wisdom that we'll be able to confidently go through them knowing that everything is in his control. He's actually using it to grow and mature us. James then gives us what I think is a real life example of where wisdom leads someone to determine uh, sorry, uh, where someone is to determine where, where wisdom has put things into perspective in their life. Again, we, we have to remember the uh, context in which James is writing into. There are misplaced, dispersed people, and James wants them to see that their trials are an occasion for joy. Read with me uh, verses 9 and 10, if you would. He starts by saying, Let the lowly brother boast in his, ex in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. Then he goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. 
Now, on first reading, this, this looks like he's saying that uh, rich people are stuffed. But I think, I think something else is happening here. Because of his audience's dispersion, which had leveled everyone out, James is saying that the lowly or the materially poor brother should boast in his exaltation and the rich brother should boast in his humiliation. But why? Why, why should they both boast in their circumstances? Well, because wisdom has shown them that life is fleeting. Yet, as James goes on to say, someone who is all about riches, who's about pursuing the treasures of this life, well, look where it's all heading. It's to absolutely nothing. It, it, it withers, it falls, it perishes and fades. And the person who lives exclusively for these things, well, the warning is the same will happen to them. See, wisdom preaches in the streets, so to speak. To be blessed isn't to pursue and live for the treasure of this world because it's all coming to an end anyway. Wisdom shows that we're to lift our eyes above the immediate things that we see around us and to stop living for these material possessions which are here today and gone tomorrow as his audience knew full well. Wisdom thus causes us to remain steadfast under various trials of life because it's revealed that there is something else worth living for. You might lose all your earthly possessions, yet wisdom has caused you to look at what God has for you. And for those who love him, we're told in verse 12, they have the crown of life. That's why one might boast poor and rich alike, because they have come to see that this life isn't all there is to live for. They've come to love something more than their very lives. Now, I I want you to notice something about the language that James employs here, because when he talks about a crown, I, I don't know if you're like me, but you instantly think of the Netflix show, and you think of the Queen, and such and so forth. Within context, James's readers would have understood that this language meant something like a, a wreath, something that you give to an athlete when they finish a race. And I also want you to see that the picture that James is painting for us isn't so much a coronation of uh, where we receive some physical crown, but a picture of a race, a, a marathon, where trial after trial after trial There is an eternal life waiting at the end for us. All this is to say is that James is showing us that the world and the things in it aren't our final ambition as the children of God. This isn't all there is. And this should give us such incredible comfort in the midst of our trials because this this world isn't all there is to live for. Church, I can't imagine what some of you in this room have gone through or even are going through at this very moment. I don't for a second want to downplay the hard trials that you're going through and how hard they might be. But let these words that you're hearing this morning encourage you. The Bible is telling us that there is coming a day when you will totally and eternally share in God's reward. Where you will lack in nothing, 
where you will be complete and where you will be glorified with your Lord Jesus, where you'll receive the crown of life. And I want to encourage you in your trials that God calls the one that remains steadfast, blessed. However, brother, sister, we all must remember that we don't remain steadfast in our own strength. No, we remain steadfast by continually drawing near to God in our many and various trials, by relying on the wisdom he provides us, and by keeping the end goal in our mind. It's as we fix on these things that this world that isn't all there is, it's when we can go through such horrid seasons, finding our joy like a treasure among the rubble. Which brings me to my next point. Should I close that? Okay. You're going to face temptations, but take heart, you belong to God. And this is a much shorter point. Trials of various kinds are hard, both externally and internally, no doubt. Yet as we've seen, when we come to them, they're actually being used for our good. Not only are they conforming us to the character of God, they're causing us to become more and more reliant on him. And because God is good, because he is holy, he would never lead his children into a situation where we would ever be forced to sin. That's what James is getting at here in verse 13, where he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. John Calvin uh, comments on this, and he says, God tests his children for our edification, yet the devil tempts us for our destruction. So we have a paradox here, right? We know that trials grow our dependence on God, yet we have no desire to be in a situation where we would ever want to sin against our God. But that's what's so interesting about where James takes this whole line of argument. We might expect him to start talking about the devil and how he tempts us, but look what he says in verse 14. Each person, when he's tempted, when he's lured and enticed, it's by his own desire. Church, does the devil tempt us? Absolutely. We see this all throughout the Bible. But what James wants to show us here is, is that the ultimate responsibility with what we do with temptation lies directly with us. And I want you to see something with the, the, the words that James uses here, which are so closely related to temptation. They're lured, enticed, and desire. Those words, again, are lured, enticed, and desire. And these are very important for us to understand because verse 15 tells us this is a, a life and death situation. Now, the language of lured, enticed, and desire makes me think of a scene where God is explaining to Cain in Genesis, who's being tempted to kill his brother, and he likens sin to like a, a dangerous beast. We read in Genesis 4, 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
See, what God, is, what, what God is telling Cain about sin is that it's personal and like a wild beast, it crouches and strives to harm you. Meaning that we're not to think of sin as, as some passive, harmless pet to nurture. Rather, we're to think of it as something that is actively out to kill us. So with that in mind, James then tells us that we're tempted to sin because at the end of the day, we actually desire it. So we might ask here, how on earth have we come to desire something that wants to harm and ultimately kill us? Well, first of all, we're by nature sinners, and that's an entire different sermon. But I want to focus on this second point, which is sin never presents itself as deadly. Notice what James says here. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. Notice he doesn't say each person is tempted when he wants to cause himself uh, and others around him serious harm and even death. And the imagery is striking. A, A fish isn't lured by the thought of a fisherman descaling them and then gutting them and throwing them in the fire, is it? It's lured by the delicious bait that's dangling right there in front of them. Sin never lures us in with its final product. It baits us in and gets us to think that it's just some harmless adult naughtiness. That's why we don't flee from it. James is crystal clear here about the whole process. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So what is the death that James is talking about here? Well, let me give you an illustration that I once heard. Imagine you're walking past the shops and you see something that you want, but you can't afford it and you wish you could have it. Well, that's desire. Something's caught your eye and it's attracted you. Imagine, however, imagine if you reason within yourself and you say, you know what, I really want that thing, so I'm going to steal it. That's now moved from desire to conception and birth of sin. And if that's not repented of, if, if, if that's ruminating in the mind, then you'll be driven to act on it. And that's sin, and that's the thing that has caused death. Our trials and temptations are real, no doubt. With James's audience, their temptation may have been just to drop everything, deny Christ, and then return back to their life pursuing their desires. And nothing is different today. We might not be a destitute and displaced people group, but we are a people that come against various external trials in our world which internally tempt us to flee from God. Will you struggle? Absolutely. Will sin entice and lure you to run away from God daily? You can count on it. And if we were to leave it there this morning, this would not be a good news sermon whatsoever. But thank God for what James goes on to say. Would you read with me 16 and 17? James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Church, James is showing us that God is good. That, there is, that he is the source of all that is good in this world. That's why we can trust him in the midst of our trials and temptations. 
He is so good. And, and though we might be tempted to flee from him and sin, we must not be deceived. He is good and does not change. And that is such good news. I want you to imagine if God did change. Imagine in the, in the midst of your trials and temptations, in the midst of being lured, enticed, and even when you sin, imagine if God changed his character or even his mind towards you. I don't know about you, but I would be utterly stuffed. But in the midst of our trials, when I struggle, when I get worried, Sometimes it takes me time to get into that prayer closet and get around trusted brothers and sisters to confess sin to. However, this is the amazing truth that we find in this passage. Though it may take us a while to stop freaking out, a while to stop trying to figure things out on our own, God has not for a second lost control, nor does his will towards us ever change of which he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures, says verse 18. What is all of this saying, this passage? It's saying that by his own good will, by God's own good and unchanging will, he chose to bring us forth. In other words, God chose to give us spiritual life through the word, which is a wonderful picture of the gospel. While we were dead in sin, while by our very nature we chose to continually rebel against God because we were spiritually dead, he chose us. He chose to bring us forth and give us spiritual life by revealing to us through the wonderful word of the gospel that he sent his son to live a perfectly sinless life on our behalf, to be crucified for our sin, taking that death. This is what God chose to do for us. He chose to deal fully and finally with our sin in Jesus. And some of you need to hear this this morning. He's not changed his mind or regretted that about you for a second. So in our trials, in our temptation to run and hide, we must keep what God has done for us in our mind. Think on the gospel Think how he has rescued us. Confess when you struggle. Speak to your brothers and sisters in the church. Think on the things, how he's given us spiritual life, how he loves you more than you could possibly imagine, and how he will never change his mind about you. In the midst of your trials, church, in the midst of your temptation, he's bringing about something wonderful. And there will come a day when there will be no more trials or temptation because he has rescued us and dealt with our sin fully and finally. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that when we look into your word, it is good. That even in the most hardest of circumstances, Father, we know that you have not lost control, that you love us, that you are for us. And even where we see the most vile act in the history where your amazing son was crucified, you brought about the most incredible salvation for your people. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through 
trials and temptations, Lord. Would you, by your spirit, remind them that you love them, that you are good, that you are their father. Remind them of the gospel and to look to Jesus daily in the midst of this season. In Jesus' name, amen.